Mac Power Users, Episode 17, DNS and Macworld 2010. Hello, everybody. This is David Sparks. Along with me today is Katie Floyd. Hi, Katie. Hey, David. And we have a guest today, George Starcher. How are you today, George? I'm not doing too bad. Waiting for to find out how cold it's going to get here. <laughs> George, you are our first guest. Well, I appreciate that. I we do listen to the show, so get some kind of award and name it after you or something. Yes, the <laughs> annual George Starcher slot is occupied by George Starcher today. Yeah, there we go. Well, if it, you know, I don't want to make you feel bad, but I'm in Irvine, California, wearing shorts and a t-shirt right now. So, there you have it. We yeah, are I was thinking lows. <laughs> I was thinking of setting up my iPhone and putting it on time-lapse camera, you know, get one of those time-lapse apps and just let it set it up in the window and record all the snow that's supposed to be coming. Well, we're not that bad, but I, I, I must admit I am creating a major fashion faux pas and I'm wearing socks with my sandals today. That is pretty bad. My toes are cold. Okay, well, you can get that Gorillapod app. I think it has it's free and it has a built-in time-lapse. But that's not why we're here today. We're here to talk about DNS. And, uh, you know, DNS is an interesting thing. Uh, what's it? Domain name system. And it's kind of one of those, you know, funny things. If you're not really into internet networking, even if you're a, a, a power user on the Mac, you may have really no clue what all that means. I mean, the, inter- the internet's kind of a group of tubes to people, and you think there might be mice on the other end running on wheels or something. And George did an excellent series of screencasts about the open DNS service, and we thought we'd have him in to talk to us about DNS because there are some recent developments. Yep. So, so George, let's start out with just, you know, what is DNS? Well, it's basically the phone book for the computer network and the Internet. So anytime you want to go to a website like CNN.com, you type www.cnn.com. If everyone had to remember the numbers like 63, 57, 238, 95, you'd never be able to remember that. It just doesn't work for humans, right? Yeah, so, so CNN actually is a, a certain address on the Internet. It's a series of numbers of the IP address, right? Yeah, in essence, what DNS does is your computer needs to know the numbers to get there. It's kind of like looking in the phone book and looking up Katie's name, and then you get her phone number, and then you can dial it, right? So the computer needs to know the numbers, but the human needs to know the name because that's what's easiest for us to work with. And then for most users, how does the DNS system work for them? Where do they get, where's the phone book located? Okay. Normally they get a server that the, their computers will look stuff up from, from their internet service provider when they automatically get their IP network address from that provider. So like your, let's say you have an Apple airport extreme router you have it plugged into your Comcast internet connection, it usually will get that information from Comcast, and it will use the server Comcast to set up. And so using the Comcast phone book can be a problem. Yeah, I, I, I'm a Comcast user, and I have seen several times over the past couple of years where once or twice a year their servers, at least in my region, have stopped responding or gotten very slow. And what that will create is the average person will think the Internet doesn't work when really there's nothing wrong with their service. They really can get somewhere if they knew the numbers to try. And what it is is the name to numbers isn't working. Therefore, they type in CNN into their web browser and it won't resolve it. 
and therefore it doesn't go anywhere. Yeah, so the pipes are working. You're getting out to the Internet, but because the uh, phone book can't get the number for CNN, you, you can't go anywhere. That's correct. Okay. That happens now and then. So, uh, you, you know, you can either get it from your provider or you can set up your own. <laughs> yeah. And That's why people a lot of times will tweet, is Twitter down for, or I guess they won't tweet that, you know, is, is Google <laughs> down for everybody or is it just down for me or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that could be it. It could be part of their DNS, maybe has an issue or more commonly in those situations, wherever they are, there's some routing issue on the internet and the pipes and they're not getting to a certain section of the internet, like uh, a range of sites will be down because they're in a certain range and these people can't get to it. That That's usually more what that is. But you you will see where they can get, like, maybe maybe something like their Skype or something, some other one application works, and then but they can't browse the net. It's because maybe that application works by number or it's memorized the number temporarily and it's still working, and then the web browser doesn't. You know, in addition to these reliability problems you can have with using it through your Internet service provider, there's also some security risk, right? Well, the security risk with DNS is obviously if I go to put CNN.com into my web browser or my bank, for instance. Let's use the bank, right? I go to put my bank in. If the bad guy controls the phone book, he can send me to a server that looks like my bank but isn't, right? And that can uh, – there's a file on your machine where that information can be stored. And sometimes these pieces of malware that get on your machine from Trojans and stuff will change that. Um, other times it could be you're in a public area on a Wi-Fi hotspot and it turns out you're not really – on the hotspot you think you're on, it's really a bad guy set up with like a laptop, and he's handing back that phone book that you know information, and he's giving you the wrong information. In those cases, that's definitely malicious, right? Where he's sending you somewhere he wants you to go, and you don't even know it's happening. Yeah. So then you end up putting in your PayPal account for something that's not PayPal but looks like PayPal. Exactly. And then he has your PayPal account. Well, and right. I think a and, lot of Mac users tend to be naive because, oh, we don't have those Trojan issues and we don't have those malware and spyware issues. But there are more potential security issues out there beyond that just because we're on a well, Mac. Well, the, the, the simple thing is, is DNS is used by pretty much Every, any computer yeah. on the Internet. So if you're getting sent to a improper location, it doesn't matter that you're on a Mac. You're still going to the fake PayPal instead of the real one. Because that's a networking thing. It's not exploiting the Mac. It's exploiting how DNS works. And this person's getting in the middle and giving you bad information. So that's a problem. But there is a solution. Yeah. Well, the well, another just real quick, another key way to recognize that, too, is if you, like, say you're on your iPhone or your mail, because mail.app on the Mac and mail on your iPhone typically will set up to use the what you call SSL encryption, right. you know, when you see it. And uh, it will give you a warning usually about a certificate being wrong and not matching the address. Usually that can happen when someone's sending you through a proxy or using this DNS trick. So generally, if I see a warning about my certificate not matching, 
and it's my mail and or I'm trying to get to my bank, I immediately stop and don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Because it could be any of these bad things. So you know, with that said, you can generally the, the the ISP DNS for your home is not usually going to get hijacked like that, right? Usually it's going to be more of a performance, like it's slow because there's tons of people on Comcast using it in your area and Comcast hasn't paid to put extra ones in or maybe it's down, right? Yeah, you know, so you've got a lot of people hitting the phone book, so it's slower to get the numbers out. And uh, also, I've always found that there's a problem with updates. The local service providers a lot of times don't update their DNS library enough. Is that the right word? I guess. Yeah, there there is when when a person owns a domain, they can say how long the information in the phone book should stay cached. Because what happens is, your Mac, you put in CNN.com, it goes and asks Comcast server which they may in turn go ask the main.com servers who has Comcast and work or uh, who has CNN and work its way down to CNN.com and CNN says, here's where my web server's at. It will tell it how long to hold on to that information, you know, a day, two days, three days, whatever. And that information is then held. So it doesn't have to go through when you at, when the next person at Comcast asks for CNN the Comcast phone book server doesn't have to go all the way to CNNs to get the information. It already knows it. So if it's holding on to it for too long improperly or ignoring what CNN says to hold it for, then yes, that can cause a problem where, um, you know, like one of your favorite websites moves from GoDaddy to domain.com, right? And you're still getting the site as being down and your friend in California is getting straight to the new one. That's usually a DNS timing sort of problem. And, you know, I just experienced that. I, I moved the Max Sparky site over from one uh, service provider to uh, to Squarespace. And I had some people that were, weren't able to get the new site and I told them to refresh and they eventually got there. But I think that was a DNS issue in essence. Yeah. Usually, usually what, sites will do is they'll change that what's called time to live value of their phone book down to like an hour before they make the change and leave it leave it that way for a day to make sure it's propagated out there and then that way it's getting out of the system and flushing out every hour and then they'll move their site to minimize that that window of where people can't get to where they really ought to go yeah. Um, you know, another issue that I, I feel strongly about it with these local service providers is they just really aren't mining, uh, minding the shop, you know. So a lot of times there's blacklists of bad addresses, you know, places where people are known to get in trouble and they shouldn't be going there. And I'm not speaking from, you know, a moralistic standpoint, but actually, you know, malicious websites that are out there trying to, to, to uh, steal your data or cause other problems. And, the ISPs with varying degrees of diligence will remove these from the list. So you won't get there through their site. Yeah. As a rule, traditionally a DNS server does not make such a distinction. It simply hands out the information, but because of our current environment and the hostile stuff on the internet, your service providers, as you say, to one level or another, will make an effort to try and, you know, uh, basically send that phone call, if you will, to a dead end rather than letting you go to where it really is. 
So technically, they're lying to your machine, but they're doing it because, you know, it's good for you for them to do that. The alternative, too, is that if it's a really small provider and they don't have the resources and a hacker gets control of that phone book, then they can redirect all the customers of that of that company to wherever they want. And that's very bad. Yeah. So So, I've always, you know, felt that, you know, there was a problem with the DNS service as as it stands with your local service provider. And then about a year or two ago, you started talking about OpenDNS, and I started looking at it and watched your screencasts, and I immediately bought into it, and I've been using OpenDNS uh, since then. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is? Yeah. It's basically a DNS service provider, so they're providing a phone book. You basically go either into your computer itself or into your router and tell it instead of using the ones your Internet provider gives you, go to the ones that OpenDNS provides. The benefit is, is DNS is all they do, you know, on the front end. So they're, you know, really focused on keeping it up, keeping it reliable, making sure it's responsive and quick. And then the additional things that they add is they do a more proactive thing about blocking phishing sites because the guys behind OpenDNS are actually behind a group called Fish Tank, which is one of the leading phishing researching group that looks into phishing sites and tries to keep all that information up to date as to where these bad sites are. So just by changing your DNS numbers to point to their DNS phone book server, you immediately get the blocking of any phishing sites that they know about. They basically, in essence, your machine, say, tries to go to that mail that you clicked because you didn't realize it was bad their server says, wait, that's bad. We're not going to send you to the real server. We're going to send you to this page instead that says this is a bad site and we're blocking it because that's why you chose to use us, right? So OpenDNS basically says they have a couple of advantages. One, you know, we do DNS and pretty much only DNS. Your cable company or your DSL company does a whole bunch of other stuff, so we do it better than they do. Um and then they also tend to boast that they're they're faster than your typical cable or DSL company. And my understanding is that's because of the way that they use caching and the places they have strategically located their servers around the com- uh, country. Can you can you speak a little bit about why OpenDNS may be faster than your yeah. ISP? Because I, yeah, exactly for the reasons they say. Why? Right? Well, one, they're probably using better hardware than maybe just you know a DNS server that you're. ISP is just keeping in there to keep things running. Two, they are placing these things at the major junctions of the Internet so that when you send out that request, it, it doesn't have to go very far into the Internet to get there. And that way you get, you know, like if your fastest location to the Internet is in Atlanta and you're going there, then, you know, or your request goes there, then you get that response back a little bit faster. And then, and then you, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, so not only is it more stable, more reliable, typically more updated, um, faster, but you touched on this briefly, is it's also a lot more customizable because immediately if you start using it, you automatically built in, get some of this anti-phishing. Feature. Right. They just block that category outright. They but partnered then, with, yeah. yeah, they partnered with a company called Bluecoat that lets them do filtering for other web type categories like porn and things that you might not want in your house. 
Um, and, and that's where I was going is, but then beyond phishing, you can, if you sign up for them and you create an account, you have the ability to go in and manage the access on your account so you can decide what you do and what you don't want specific sites or specific categories of sites um, to be accessed on your network, which I think is great um, for parents. You know, give them the control to have some of these tools that, you know, it's not like your kid can bypass this by, you know, sneaking the laptop somewhere, you know, under the bed or whatnot. But it's, you know, if they're going through your router, they're going to get blocked. Yeah, you know, and that's really convenient. Uh, I have, you know, people that visit me, and some of them are a little bit shady. <laughs> and, you have uh, shady people on your home network? Oh, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, we have friends and family that come over Their and family. want to get into the Wi Fi. I thought you were going to say clients. <laughs> <laughs> no, my clients are all upstanding. <laughs> anyway, but no, you know, they come over. I, I, I'm not going to name names, but anyway, you know, so they come over, and since I activated OpenDNS, you know, certain doors are just no longer open. And, Nobody. And it's not like they're going to complain to you and say, hey, David, I can't get yeah. to this site on your network. <laughs> yeah, I, I know. I know that the door's closed and uh, there's never been any conversation about it, but it, it makes me giggle a little bit to know that that door is closed. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, I do it here because I have younger nieces, and if they come over, I don't want them to accidentally go to something they shouldn't. And one of the nieces is actually a, a teenager where the other ones are really younger. And you never know what she's going to do when she's over here. Um, so, you know, I, I, I use it for that. I also use it to block, you know, adware pop-up type stuff and phishing. I use it at my parents' house because my stepdad, bless his heart, loves to play his little online poker junk. And mm-hmm. the amount of malware that gets on those PCs because of the, his going to those kinds of sites is bad. And if I can even... It doesn't stop everything. I mean, no one solution is going to block all of that. But this is a solution that doesn't require me to install anything on any of the computers because it's happening at the DNS phone book layer where it goes, oh, you want to block all adult sites. We say this is an adult site, and you say you want to block it, so we're going to send you to the block page instead. Then if it even cuts it down to where I only get a phone call once every two months instead of once every week, it's well worth it to me, and it's free, right? Yeah, so you're you know, denying I'll, the poor guy is poker. Well, no, you don't. He, you can open that that site, right? He can get to his poker. Oh, I, I thought he was, said he was just blocking all those gaming. Oh sites. no, no, but there's a lot of junk stuff because you know maybe maybe the ads that get embedded onto that site are actually what you really want to block because that's how the malware gets on there, whatever. And so blocking some of that other stuff helps reduce the amount of gunk that gets on the machine. Automatically, yeah, well, you know, and all kidding aside, if you have children in your house, uh, they cannot almost cannot get on the internet without stumbling across something that really is inappropriate. I mean, just sometimes you'll do a Google image search for something completely innocent, and you know your eyeballs will catch on fire. Um, it's just terrible. So I think this is a great service, and the point you made is it's free and it's easy. So, yep. so talk a little bit about setting up. I, I want people who are interested in this to go watch your screencast because that's really the best way to do it. But just yeah. give a, a quick 10-minute, you know. Yeah. Just to get it up and running and just to get the phishing is simply going, like, into your computer's network settings or into your router so all your computers get it. And, 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 go and router to, is preferred, correct? I mean, if you, yes, if you use preferred, a router. That way all your computers just get it. Yeah. Right. And... You just go to where the DNS settings are and enter the two straight off the open DNS page and then give it a few minutes for, you know, or, you know like reboot. Maybe you may need to 
release and renew your IP on your computer. Of course, rebooting is the simple way to do that. And then from then on, it will be using those DNS servers instead, and you're immediately taken care of for phishing. As Katie said, you have to set up an account if you want to set up all the other features. And basically what that's doing is you make a login and then you tell it, this is the internet address I'm on. And so their servers say, David's on this 53.97.97.53 address. If we get a phone book request from that address, how does David want his stuff blocked? Oh, he wants adult blocked. He wants porn blocked. He wants adware blocked. He wants phishing blocked. Okay, if he asks for any of those, then he knows we're going to send him to this block page instead. He's made that choice, right? I mean, this is ridiculous. It's ridiculously easy. I put it off a long time, uh, switching over to open DNS. And then we had a problem. I use Cox cable and we had a problem with our DNS server that, you know, I was at work and my wife calls me and says the computer's broken, you know, and it turned out to be just a DNS issue. And that's when I said, okay, I'm going to do it. I watched your video and it took me all of about 10 minutes just to get the basic thing set up. And I was yeah, just, just to make the basic change takes no time at all. Yeah. I was kicking those myself. decisions about what the block that may take you a few minutes to decide. <laughs> I mean, really, though, it, the time it, it takes longer, you know, to brew a cup of tea than it does to switch this over. And uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't done it, you should just go do it. Yeah, the easiest thing is watch the videos. That way, you'll get familiar. And you know, DNS, Open DNS has added a few extra features since then, but still, it's in essence the same thing. The only thing you do have to do additionally is most internet providers, your internet address changes now and then, right? In OpenDNS, the way it knows to tell you what's blocked and to send you to that block page is based on what address you're coming from. So you can download any of a couple of different free programs, both for Windows and for Mac, uh, and then you basically just leave it running and you tell it your OpenDNS username and your OpenDNS password. And what it does is it just periodically logs into OpenDNS and says, this is the IP address I'm on, and keeps it in sync and up to date so that your filtering stays active with you the entire time. It's very simple, very small little program. I usually just left it running on one of the extra computers in the house, and it just always stayed working. So what are the uh, disadvantages of using OpenDNS? The disadvantages, uh, you can inadvertently block something you didn't mean to, and they do give you the means to go override that for certain sites. I'll give you a key example. I had certain sites blocked on our guest internet connection at work. So at work, I take my personal iPhone in, but I don't want it on my work network, right? By my own policies I've written, that's not allowed. But I still want to be able to get my mail and stuff on it. So we have a wireless guest network set up and I put my iPhone on that and I found that the particular combination of categories I was blocking was blocking me.com so I was having problems getting my mobile me mail on my iPhone and updates to my calendar so I simply logged into OpenDNS and I went down to the bottom and just said always allow and I typed me.com and I hit okay and then you know, within about 10 minutes, it kind of worked its way through the system and just started working. Good thing you know <laughs> and the unblocked it. 
Well, I wish you were the IT guy at my at my place of uh, work, George. <laughs> I'm always fighting PC people. Now, it's, yeah. that, that can be an issue is that if if you don't know that the where you are is running DNS or if it's not your network or you're just a user on the network, you're probably going to have to wait until somebody who knows what's going on is around to make the change. But yes, again, if you, make, if you make the choice to use OpenDNS in, in your own personal home, then then that probably is not going to be an issue. I've got, I've heard a lot of criticism of people, and I'm I'm not really sure this is founded. Um, that you know, oh, they 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 show you ads and they try to sell you ads and or sell you things. And where that really comes from is under certain circumstances, if you type um, something in the address bar that is not found or not correct or so off from what you were trying to type, because one of the features of OpenDNS is that it will provide you with some typo correction, um, then you go not to a 404 page not found, um, but you come to a an open DNS page um, that has some suggestions and some Google ads on it. And open DNS is really free for anybody to use, and that's how you pay for it, is that occasionally you get landed um, when you don't intend to go somewhere on this Google page. Yeah, that that is true. I mean, they, they I mean, because remember, these originally started out as a small group of guys running this thing, and they've slowly matured as a company, but they've kept the service free. They kept it high quality, and they do have to make some sort of income to keep the lights on somehow. And to be honest, I've used it for years, and I almost never land on those pages. And it's not a whole lot different than typing a domain wrong. You know, instead of whitehouse.gov, maybe whitehouse.net, and you land on some part domain page, which is one of the categories you can block with OpenDNS, by the way. Well, and, and you and you get all this junk in it, right? So, right. so you never get the ads unless yeah. you've accidentally unless you've gone somewhere that you probably don't intend to go. Right. So it's and not as though they pop up it. and you get ads or. Yeah, exactly. You type C C M O instead of com, right? And it lands you somewhere funky. Um, you know, so like you say, I, I very rarely run into it. I know I might occasionally run into it, but that's the price I'm paying for this free service with this blocking. The other thing that um, you can uh, that obviously they know where you're surfing, right? Anyone who controls the DNS knows where the people who do the lookups are surfing, whether that's at work, whether that's Comcast watching your DNS, whether you use Google DNS, whether you use OpenDNS. The OpenDNS free does keep some logs if you turn them on for certain for a couple days so you can actually go check and see what sites were blocked or which sites were allowed, depending on what sort of statistics you turn on in your account. And, and that can be useful, right? If you, you want to find out if your kid was trying to go somewhere they shouldn't because they're a teenager and they do those things, then you at least have a sense that someone in the house did it. You won't know exactly which computer did it. If there's multiple computers, you'll just know someone tried to hit it. And that can be useful, but then they flush those out and you know those go away. So it's not a huge risk with that. The, the only other real problem I've had with OpenDNS, and this is a widely criticized thing of them, but again, it's a known issue, is the fact that the way that typo correction works is, you know, if you type it wrong, it knows that you're really meant to go over here instead, so it has to redirect you and bounce you. 
I mean, that's the way it works. And that's not technically part of how DNS was supposed to work. So they are doing something a little non-standard with that trick, but it's the one way it works without you having to install anything on your computer, right? And the one time I've seen that break something is with spam filtering for work. We use a, an open source product called Spam Assassin. It has to go look up the domain of the mail coming in and that redirection to a domain when it thinks you typed it wrong, when you really, it's really trying to look up a legitimately misspelled domain can mess those systems up. So the solution is at places like my work and I've got IT using open DNS at the outside to help block a little extra phishing stuff and a little extra porn stuff, but we turn off the typo correction so that it doesn't mess with our spam system. Right. But we know that it's documented and we just turn it off. I've heard some people complain too that in some instances uh, you can have trouble with VPN access. Yeah, I, I imagine certain pieces of software might have that problem, but it, it, you know, and that really comes down to basic troubleshooting for the computer in general. If you go turn on Open DNS tonight after listening to the show, and all of a sudden something you, doesn't work, and something doesn't work, go change it back and see if the problem goes away. If it does then something about the way you set up or a category you chose to block or maybe this um, you know, uh, typo correction feature is causing your problem and you can then troubleshoot it and turn the things all off and then turn them back on one at a time until you find the one that caused the problem and then just choose to leave it off. That simple. And I can just say from my experience, I've had OpenDNS running for for definitely over a year. I'm not sure how long I've had it, but well, since you made since you re- released those videos, and I do back to my Mac all the time. I do VPN into a Windows network at my office all the time. No troubles. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Like well, I said, the only time I've run into it is at work. That one thing. Okay, so they, there's something exciting going on now. Google has got into the DNS business. Uh, just recently, Google has announced that they're going to have their own DNS servers. And uh, they're located was at 8.8.8.8, if memory serves. And um, so OpenDNS suddenly has a bit of competition. What do you think about Google's entry, George? Well, I think Katie was going to say something. Were you going to... Oh, no, I'm, I was just going to talk DNS? a little bit about the, um, the pricing options of OpenDNS. And just to go back to say that... It's free for basic use. They do have a deluxe version, which is nine ninety five a year, that gives you some more advanced options for customizing your pages. Um, and there is an enterprise version as well if you want to use it in the enterprise. But for basic everyday use, it's it's completely free unless you want to opt to go to the nine ninety five a year version. Yeah, and I mean, and again, you don't have to pay that two thousand a year to use OpenDNS for its basic filtering in the enterprise. They just have some additional enterprise features that you may or may not want in your enterprise. So it just depends on what you're willing to pay for and, you know, how you're using it. So I guess back to the Google DNS, they're giving you more of a straight traditional DNS. They're not giving you all these extra blocking, you know, like we're DNS or open DNS partnered with blue coat, which is an internet filtering company to help filter that kind of stuff. You're not getting that with Google DNS. They're basically providing an alternative phone book system to the regular phone book system that your ISP is giving you. They actually do, there is a good tool called Namebench, 
which I'm sure you guys could put the link in the show note. It's a little free tool. It's, uh, it's you can download, runs on Mac, runs on PC, and you run it, and it will tell you whether your current, you know, like if you leave your DNS set to your, you know, Comcast, right? It will also check Google. It'll also check OpenDNS, and then it will tell you which of them are faster. So you can decide based on which one's faster to go to choose one. But then you also may want to factor in: is it more reliable? You know, like maybe Comcast is faster, but since I've seen them go down, maybe I want the OpenDNS instead. And then maybe I want OpenDNS because I want the filtering, or maybe I just want speed and I'll go with Google, right? Yeah, they're all good options. I, I, I've been running Google for about 10 days, you know, just as I knew we were getting ready for this show, I thought I'd give it a, a try. And I can't tell any noticeable difference in speed, and I should have known about this app, but I didn't. So I'll have to go back and run it and see what the differences are. But uh, to be honest, I really like the OpenDNS, and ultimately I'll be going back to it because I like the filtering. Yeah, and, and that's just a choice, right? You're choosing the features, or that you just want plain DNS with speed and the reliability that Google probably brings to that that's better than, say, Comcast or somebody, whoever you're currently using. So you just got to choose between those three, right? Do we know yet if Google is going to keep logs of your uh, search history and all that as well as uh, OpenDNS does? Supposedly right now, the way the privacy policy, and of course you know those things can change without notice, says that they will not tie your traffic to your regular Google tracking that they do for all of us, right? Because <laughs> uh, if you're logged into your Google and you, you got your Gmail up and they're watching your surf history and all this, that works. Well, one, as long as you're logged into Google, right? They, they get your web history that way. Two, if you're not logged into Google and you're clearing out your cookies, then you're throwing away Google's or you're making it tougher for Google to follow you specifically. But if they controlled your DNS, they're always going to know where you're going, no matter what cookies you clean out, right? Because it's a phone book lookup, and they're getting that, and it's now existing on their end. Supposedly, yeah, yeah. Supposedly, they're not keeping it, or they're not keeping it specific to you. They're anonymizing it. Of course, we've seen some privacy issues where what was supposedly anonymized data still got correlated back to real people. And if anyone could do that, it's Google. Yeah. Um, I use a number of Google services. I'm not going to lie, but I'm not a Gmail user principally because I know that they keep all that. They The system automatically reads my mail and you know gives me ads and all that if I'm using Gmail, right? It puts up tailored stuff. The downside is that even though I don't use Google, Gmail is my principal mail, just because half of my friends do, at least half of my conversations are ending up in Google's hands anyway. Uh, you know, the, their privacy policy says they're not. And I have to think, at least for now, that that's probably true, that they're adhering to that. But with those things can change. I mean, you know, technically, DNS, open DNS isn't either, right? Um, you just got to decide who you trust, who you prefer, and how far you want that trust to continue. But any of these tools could be misused should the motivation for the companies that own them change. You know, I don't think Google has any nefarious goals or anything, but I, I had the same. They say they won't do any evil. It, well, when people <laughs> say they're not going to do evil, that's when I start getting worried. Yeah. But uh, I, I was looking at my wife's email because she uses Gmail. And there's all these ads that are context sensitive 
about a conversation she's having with somebody. If she's talking to someone about, you know, lipstick, there's an ad in the, in the side for lipstick. And that just really creeped me out when I saw that. And that's one of the reasons why I've always stuck with Apple mail and, and not gone over to Gmail. But, you know, I think I'm unusual in that regard. I think more and more people don't really care and they're willing to, they don't really, the privacy issue is not as big of a deal for the younger generation. So I think this is going to develop. It'll be interesting to see where it all goes, but I sure I'm glad you came in, George. Um, I think the takeaway for this is, uh, frankly, you should not be on your local service of providers, DNS. You should get yourself onto Google or open DNS. And if you want that filtering, um, open DNS is the place to go. I really don't think the ads for open DNS are a big deal. Yeah, I almost never see them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a speed thing, too. I mean, if Google is much faster, then use Google. But if you've got little kids, you know, stick with open DNS. Yeah, just, you know, basically make an informed decision, grab that name bench tool, run it, and then decide whether you want speed over features and then go with what works for you. And neither one is going to cost you anything, and neither one is going to take much time to set up. You'll you'll be happy you did it. Yep. I'm so glad we had you in, George. Uh, I'm really glad we had a, an opportunity to talk to you about this because you're just so knowledgeable, and I thought you did such a great job on those screencasts. Uh, so I would recommend to all the listeners, uh, we're going to put the uh, the links in the show notes. Go check it out. And if you have any questions, let us know. But I think this is a good show and a, a good idea for everyone to, to get themselves on a better DNS server. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, George, before you go, tell us, um, if you'd like, where people can find you and, and what you're up to on the web these days. Yeah, primarily most of my podcasting stuff, I help Victor Cahiao over at typicalmacuser.com. And then if you're more interested in more of my personal stuff, then you can find me at georgestarcher.net. And if you're real heady and want to get into my information security stuff and my forensic stuff, that's georgestarcher.com. I've done a number of videos lately. Uh, I've kind of got it back into the screencasting kick. So if you're looking to get into podcasting or tips on audio processing, I've thrown a bunch of videos up on YouTube, and they are linked at my georgestarcher.net site. Georgia, I went and read some of your security posts, and you've got some serious propeller beanie action going on there, my friend. <laughs> yeah, well, I have the jack of all trades, master of none, right? <laughs> well, it's, it's really it's fascinating, some of that stuff. Uh, I have to take it in, like, you know, one, two, three-word uh, increments. <laughs> okay, well, anyway, uh, thanks a lot for coming in, George, and uh, we'll have... We'll probably uh, have some questions for you if we hear anything interesting from the listeners, and we may have you back for a follow-up or may just email you. Uh, but once again, I do appreciate you coming in. Great. Thanks for having me. In addition to having George join us, we also did an interview with Paul Kent about Macworld. We're going to go ahead and play that now and do the prior episode follow-up questions right after. So without further ado, here's Paul. Okay, Katie, so we've got... Paul Kent, the General Manager and Vice President from IDG for the Macworld Expo, again with us today. Welcome back, Paul. Thanks, David. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm really excited. I think it what is it, like 33 days or something now until exactly. the big day. That's, yep, exactly. I'm uh, getting I, close. There's a lot of buzz in the air, it seems. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of excitement. There's a lot of chatter going on. The marketplace is talking about it. So we're in that time of year where it builds right to the show. Yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun 
uh, this year with all the new things you've added. We talked a little bit during your last appearance on the Mac Power Users, and before the show started, we were talking. I think it'd be really fun to talk about some of the real specific uh, new news you have in terms of the featured speakers and the events you can do. I know a lot of our listeners have already made their reservations, and I'm sure they'd like to hear your thoughts about the, the things they should cover while they're at Macworld. Sure. Well, let me draw a picture for you. So, you know, Macworld is this is this big but very manageable, if you know what's going on, environment where there's stuff really around every corner. We'll take the basic um, um, entrance, which is uh, one of our expo-only passes. Once you get a pass that just come onto the expo floor, there's actually a ton of stuff for you to do. So with that pass, not only are you able to do the product viewing and product discovery, that's all the booths that we have at the show, but it also there's lots of free education and community things that you can get involved with. And so a couple of those are, um, well, let's start with our feature presentation program. So our feature presenters are a really amazing lineup of kind of visionary, big thinkers, you know, well-known people from around the tech space. And these presentations happen several times during the day. Some of the people that we have lined up for you are the one and only David Pogue will be opening the show on Thursday morning, doing Late Night with David Pogue, even though it's at 10 in the morning. You know, he's just so uplifting. Every year I go to his uh, his presentation at Macworld, and it's just it always makes you smile and laugh, and you learn a lot, too. He's just so good at what he does. He is. Yeah, I mean, he's not to be missed. Yeah, he's really, you know, kind of elevated the whole uh, feature presentation to performance art. I mean, he he writes these brilliant, fun, but also interesting song parodies that he performs. He does magic tricks. He talks about what's going on in the marketplace. Always very funny, but he's dead on. I mean, um, CNET recently called him the most influential tech journalist on the planet, and I'd have to agree with that. I mean, and, but and he's the real deal. He's incredibly bright. You know, his books, the Missing Manual series have helped so many people. David's awesome, and we're very lucky to have him. We're really glad he came back, and he'll kick the show off. I got to fulfill one of my personal uh, ambitions, and I got to dance with Matt last year at David Pogue's presentation. You know that guy from YouTube? Absolutely. Where in the world is Matt? Yeah, I had so much fun. I, I was right up there, and uh, that was fun. So I can't wait to see what he does this year. You know, he he speaks early. Is his uh, speak speech early this year, or is it later? Yeah. It's Thursday, which is the first day of the exhibits. And maybe we should back up and just remind people, Macworld is February 9th through 13th. The 9th and 10th are our conference-only days. The conferences run 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. But the expo floor and these feature presentations, they run Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the 11th, 12th, and 13th of February. So that's real convenient for everyone who just wants to attend the expo. They can they can hit all of those. And it's no additional fee, right? Right. So the other feature presenters I'd want to tell people about, Leo Laporte, from uh, the Week in Tech. So Leo is taking over the spot that David used to have. We run this kind of, well, it's it's like a David Letterman-style talk show called um, Macworld Live. And Leo has announced some amazing guests. So you talk about, you know, where in the world is Matt, Matt Harding from last year. Well, Leo is, is running that program this year. And Leo is going to have Roger McGuinn from The Birds, who's a real techie, a real Apple products lover. Uh, Roger McGuinn will be there. Um, a Star Trek tribute band called Warp 11 will be there. <laughs> And they'll be performing, actually. And then from Mythbusters, Adam Savage will be there. So we're really thrilled. That's a pretty cool lineup, I think. And and we are um, have been assured that Adam Savage will definitely blow something up. Excellent. You know, I read that he's a Mac geek. Absolutely. In fact, I think on the show you see his MacBook Pro once in a while make an appearance. That's right. You do, actually. So then the other ones that we have, Guy Kawasaki, we actually announced yesterday. So, you know, he's really 
one of the most famous personalities from Apple's history, Guy Kawasaki, who was who ran evangelism for Apple and really was almost single-handedly responsible for getting a developer program at Apple thriving at a time when they really, really needed it. Guy's been around the Mac industry almost since it began, um, and he's a great presenter. He was a best-selling business author now, uh, but he also he's really a dynamic presenter. And he's going to be talking about excellence, excellence in design, excellence in technology. It's really going to be very helpful. So it's going to be very cool. Yeah, that's right. And you're also going to have Kevin Smith, I saw. Yep, and Kevin Smith is one that we announced a little while ago. So Kevin, of course, Dogma, Chasing Amy, Clerks, Clerks 1, Clerks 2, and I think there's a Clerks 3 as well. Um, you know, Kevin is brilliant. He's a huge Mac geek, too. A lot of his storytelling, a lot of his editing, a lot of his pre-editing is done in Apple technology. And he's going to come in and he's going to do what he's done all around the country. You know, he has a best-selling book out now, and he's he's been, just does these Q&As. We had Kevin a couple years ago. The one thing I will forewarn everybody is that uh, the, the language in Kevin's presentation is very similar to the language in Kevin's films. It's a little bit raw, but it is hysterical, and it's really a lot of fun. So if that type of thing doesn't bother you, you'll want to come to this. Maybe ask Kevin about how he uses Max, how he tells stories, how he conceives stories. Anything goes. And, you know, he's he's answered quite a few interesting questions online on Twitter, and that's what he's going to be bringing to Macworld as well. I was also really happy to see that John Gruber is going to be doing one. I think he's really smart. I agree. So John is, is really important to the show. So John, of course, runs Daring Fireball. I would have to say right now, you know, our, our marketplace, our world, the world of being an Apple products user has lots of personalities um, of varying degrees of being informed. Let's just leave it at that. John would be <laughs> John would be at the top of that list. I mean, John is so insightful, so smart. He gets things from a programmatic level. He gets things from a user interface level. And what I've asked John to do, so I invited John myself, what I asked John to do was to prepare uh, a list that we could turn into a, a yearly um, feature of Macworld. That it's, that's Gruber's list uh, of 10, 10 issues affecting all Apple product users. And so we think that's going to be really interesting. It's going to be interesting for developers who are in the audience because they, John and Daring Fireball is kind of a Bible for them. But also all users will find this incredibly insightful, incredibly sharp, incredibly well-connected guy is going to be sharing some things that are hit on his mind about being an Apple product user today. You know what I like about Gruber is, you know, I know that I get pretty good traffic on my website, Max Sparky, and, and, and this podcast has had pretty amazing success. But I also know that nobody of real importance at Apple is probably reading me. But John seems to get it right, and I know at least somebody's reading him there, and I'm glad he's speaking for us. So I'm really looking forward to, to hearing him speak at Macworld this year. I appreciate you noticing that. I, I think John is really kind of key to the value that we want to offer all Apple product users when they come to Macworld because he's just got such great insight. Yeah, I didn't even re realize Guy Kawasaki got added. Were there any other recent additions? Guy, Guy was our announcement this week. So we have a couple more cool things that are coming up, but Guy was just, just announced this week. Okay, and then also uh, the Photoshop guy, David Beardney. Right. So the next uh, feature presentation, David Biedney is, um, he's really been a pioneer in digital media and digital arts. And David has put together a special, uh, feature presentation for any of the audience listening who uses Photoshop. This year is actually the 20th anniversary of the release of the original Photoshop. So David will be bringing on some people from the development history of Photoshop, um, some Photoshop artists. He's actually going to be doing, believe it or not, a demo of Photoshop one which came on a 400K disc, right? Okay, that's so, going to be kind of awesome, actually. <laughs> what is he running that on? I'm, I'm imagining he bringing a Mac Plus. Or, I mean, <laughs> what else would he be bringing? Yeah. Well, he could do it like, like under virtualization, and it would just be smoking fast under a new machine. <laughs> I think that would lose the effect, though, the illusion of it all. <laughs> yeah. The charm that it once had. 
Yeah, you know, and each one of these speakers is free with an expo pass, and they're all speaking at different times. So it's like eight or nine hours of just free content from the best people in the Mac, you know, world. Absolutely. And these are just the things that are happening on our feature presentation stage. We also have two other um, content uh, areas on the show floor. One is called the main stage. And the main stage has a mix of um, people doing live podcasts. So, you know, a lot of these people do their podcasts from their bedroom in their garage. But Macworld is a place where we'll actually be able to do podcasts in front of a live audience. So several of the well-known podcasts in our marketplace will be broadcasting from Macworld or podcasting from Macworld. But there's also a lot of vendor demonstrations. Uh, there's some training classes. There's some switcher classes. If you're brand new to the Mac market, there are some classes on the main stage that will help you get going. And so that's all interesting things happening in the main stage. But we also, for music lovers, music being such an ingrained part of the Mac market. So, you know, everybody gets iTunes. Many people have an iPod. Many people all the way at the other end of the scale are music instructors or educators or musicians or songwriters. We actually have, in partnership with the Berklee College of Music, the Mac Music Studio. And in the Macworld Music Studio, you'll actually be able to come learn how to make music with your Mac and really enjoy everything from being a hobbyist to a semi-professional or professional um, musician, there'll be something for you in the Macro Music Studio. We're really excited about it. It's been a very successful program for us in the past, always packed. But those guys from Berkeley are just awesome. They're so accessible. They're so helpful. So if you want to learn about how your favorite Apple products can be used in your music production or education, the Macworld Music Studio will be really fun for you. Yeah, you know, going through high school, I was a massive music geek, and I actually got accepted to Berkeley uh, as a saxophone player back in, I think, 1985. Wow. And uh, I that was a point in my life where I made that choice. Where, am I going to be a musician or not? And I decided not to go forward with it. But people who don't know, uh, Berkeley is like the Juilliard of jazz music. I mean, it's it's one of the best schools in the nation. And uh, that, they've had that booth at Macworld for several years now. And once again, you got an expo pass. You can get in there. You can talk to those guys. You can play with their MIDI. They'll show you all the cool toys and how to make the most use out of it if you're interested in doing any kind of music on your computer. That's right. And, you know... I don't know how much it would cost to get a consultation like that or get that kind of a lesson privately, but it's all there. You just show up. And it's really kind of representative of what Macworld is. I mean, you know, Macworld is this great cross-section of everything going on in the Apple products world. So, you know, we, we certainly have tons of Mac stuff, tons of iPhone stuff, tons of iPod stuff. You will learn. You'll discover new products. When people ask me, you know, what is Macworld, I say that it's kind of three pillars. One is product discovery, finding new products on the show floor. The second is personal and professional development, learning things. So whether it's either in our free education or in our paid conferences, there's so much to learn at Macworld from really the best of the best in the marketplace, Berkeley being a shining example of that. But, you know, we have... You know, all of the product editors at Macworld, Chris Breen, Jason Snell, um, Rob Griffiths, you know, they teach classes at Macworld to help people become power users. We have people like David Biedney, you know, visual arts um, um, gurus really teaching classes on how to use Photoshop even better. And then the third pillar of what Macworld is, is this is this very interesting, dynamic, diverse social networking environment. And that's kind of a zest. You know, you know if you talk about the product discovery and the learning is the meat and the potatoes. I would definitely say the social environment at Macworld is something that Macworld has always been known for. And it just provides that kind of value add. In this world where we spend a lot of time behind our screens, meeting actual human beings still has an incredible value in the world. And, and Macworld is a really neat place for that. Yeah, and it's just not meeting other human beings or meeting other Mac geeks. It, it really is a, a very unique experience. You can, it's palpable when you're in that room and there's all those people around you. 
And it's the same thing when you go to the, the after hours parties and events. Uh, you can bump into people from all walks of life and you all share a passion for these Apple products. And it's so much fun. I've made so many friends uh, all over the world just bumping into them at Macworld events. It's a very welcoming group. I mean, you're right. The vibe is we're all under one roof. We all have a common denominator that we really enjoy using Apple products. And so, you know, right there, you know, you know that the person to the left of you and the right with you has some cross-section of interest with you. And that's a really interesting starting place. And then the social environment kind of takes off from there. I mean, we were talking before we got on the air today about how the very basic thing you see of these social environments is it is not uncommon to see 5, 10, 15, 20 people sitting in a circle on the floor with their with their laptops open, showing new Apple scripts that they've developed, showing interesting um, filters that they're applying in Photoshop projects or, or whatever it may be. That's one part of the social thing. And it's always very welcoming. I mean, it's, it is all about sharing information. And so, you know, you go from that and those things tend to be, you know, if you're in a class, someone asks a question that is of interest to you, you go up to them after the class, and say, Hey, I was really interested in your question. Similar type of things. You find yourself at dinner with someone like this. Um, there are parties. There are birds of a feather sessions where people can hang out. Um, there's all sorts of really interesting things. Yeah, and for those who don't know, the Birds of the Feather are events planned after hours. They give you a room at the Moscone Center where you can talk about a subject that's important to you. I know, I believe, is Adam Christensen doing the podcasting one this year, Katie? Abs- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so so no matter what your interest is. In fact, they have one last year on iWork that I wasn't able to go to because there was another one I wanted to attend. But, you know, just things that are important to you. Uh, you can go to it and you'll find a group of like-minded users and you can learn a lot from just other users. A lot of fun. Paul, let's talk a little bit about the actual educational conference that goes on at Macworld because I feel a lot of the time that tends to get pushed to the back burner, but yet it's a huge part of Macworld Expo and it's really unique in that at no other place and no other time can you get this kind of uh, training from these kind of experts um, I, so can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, who are the conference tracks designed for and, um, you know, to someone who may be coming to Macworld for the first time or who may be signing up for a conference for the first time, what can they do and what would you specifically emphasize that they focus on so that it doesn't become so overwhelming? Sure, Katie. It's a great question. So, you know, here's where we'll start. I told you about our main stage and the things that are on the show floor. If you're new to the Mac or, you know, a, a relatively new Mac user, regular, relatively new computer user, probably the stuff that you're going to want to find is going to be stuff on the show floor. Once you've kind of crossed that threshold where you really want to improve your skills uh, or you use your Mac in some kind of a professional or semi-professional prosumer uh, type of environment, that's when you kind of get into the paid conference series that we have. And we have several of them. And they they cover the gamut from from development issues, software development, to, to IT and enterprise issues, to how to just to be a power user with a Mac, to how to use some of the software that comes with your Mac, to how to use um, some of the creative professional software, how to put your Mac into small business. We have over 100 sessions for people to choose from in a whole variety of Chinese menu style of, of, uh, of selection. So I'll go through them really quickly um, and just give you a taste of it now. Really, the best way someone can kind of dive into this is to go to the website and really start reading the session descriptions, and you'll get a much better granular view of what we're offering. But in a nutshell, the first thing that we have is called the Macworld Users Conference. The Users Conference is held on Thursday and Friday. And um, it covers a whole set of skills. The tracks, and a track is kind of a thematic 
grouping of content. Uh, there are several tracks. One is called Mac OS 10 Skills. One is called Creative Skills. Another one called Work, which is a, a, a series of sessions for small business people. We have a whole track on music. We have a track for educators, K-12 educators. We have content just for them. Photography-interested people. We actually have a whole track on Apple's latest operating system called Snow Leopard, all the features that are a little bit under the hood. It's kind of you know more advanced content. And then we have a, a track of content for people looking to work with video in greater ways. And let me just kind of talk about the Mac OS X skills because it's kind of the broadest one. So uh, here's an example of the types of sessions that are in the track called My Mac OS X skills. Um, real-world Mac troubleshooting with the, with the wonderful Ted Landau. Ted, you know, really is one of the, the – um, you know, from his days at Mac Fix It to his writings for the Mac community for several years, Ted is kind of ground zero for collecting all kinds of troubleshooting information. So, real world Mac troubleshooting is, is great class. You know, and Ted is just kind of an institution by Agreed. himself. You know, so yeah. he's—I can't think of anybody better to learn that stuff from. Absolutely, um, our friend Dave Hamilton is running a class called "Running Your Mac Lean and Clean: How to Get Your Everything You Don't Need Off Your Hard Drive, How to Make Your Mac Run as Fast as Possible and Maximize Space, Memory and uh, Disk and RAM Space." Dave runs a really effective class to help people learn how to do that. I, I saw that episode two years ago. I saw that class that two years ago, the version he gave, and it was just incredible. It is, yeah. it, it, and it's and it's it's really the type of stuff that it's one step beyond. Uh, what most people think to do, but it makes such a difference in the efficient running of your computer. So it's pretty cool. Um, we've got a, cla a class that um, helps people look at all the different email clients. Um, a lot of people use Apple Mail, but you know, Google's Mail, Gmail has, has been very popular. How do you decide what's for you? If you're a mobile person, if you sit behind a desk all day, pop, IMAP, all those types of terms are covered in this class. Um, Rob Griffiths does best of Mac OS 10 hints. So if you think what Rob does all day is he thinks about what are cool, sort of documented or not very well documented or not documented at all, things that go on with running a Mac every day. Rob takes the best of these hints, shows you how to put them to work to get more out of the enjoyment of your computer. That's, an, yeah, that's another amazing one. I've seen that one as well. It's, it's and it incredible. gets updated. All these classes get updated every year as the operating systems get updated, as new things become available. All of the instructors that we invite back, once we have a theme that has been successful, every year they're updating the content. So it's never the same twice. Yeah. Don McAllister is going to be doing a, cast on, a class on screencasting. Uh, we're going to take a look at the new Magic Mouse that Apple put out and really how to put it to work and how to use the, all the various automated features that come with that. We'll take a look at iPhone security. So how secure are you really? Um, and how secure is the data that you have? And when you do syncs, how secure is the syncs that you have? So iPhone security will be covered as well. And these are just a sampling. Altogether, there's uh, four, 10, 12 sessions uh, between Thursday and Saturday that's just in the Mac OS 10 skills. And then, like I said, we have creative skills where we'll teach people to use iPhoto and Photoshop better, um, how to use color management. We have stuff for small business people, a small business home office survival guide, how to use iWork. We have classes on music, how to get more out of GarageBand. We have the whole track of content for instructor uh, K-12 educators. So there's just so much stuff. Please go to MacWorldExpo.com and navigate through our conference pages. Yeah, and I tell the listeners to take a look at the work section too because that's the one that my session is in Mac at Work. But we're also going to be covering branding the small business and the paperless Mac office. I know there's a lot of productivity geeks listening to this podcast, and that's one worth checking out. And this is content that's really not available in one place at one time anywhere else. And again, we get back to that very basic um, uh, exchange that – 
in, in many ways, learning face-to-face has a unique value. You have a question for the instructor. Other people in a class start a conversation. It's, it's all different than the type of learning you can do online. Yeah. You know, the other session I'm doing is the numbers lab. And I, are you doing uh, the labs for all the iWork components? I believe um, so um, there's there's one on numbers and there's one on iLife. No, there's not a lab on every on, on every iWork component. Okay, well I'll tell you the numbers one is really coming out great. I've been working on it a lot, and uh, at first that was a real challenge. I'm thinking, well, how can I make uh, spreadsheets exciting? But it's actually coming out really good. I've got an interesting theme. I'm gonna build the whole thing around uh, management of the Area 51 tinfoil hat club. <laughs> So we are going to be, uh, we're going to be building that club. We're going to be doing all kinds of spreadsheets and database management and stuff with that. So hopefully there'll be some laughs while we're going through it. And did you know that if you go on all the, uh, sites, you cannot buy an image of a tinfoil hat. So, uh, just not out there. I so, did not know that. Yeah. So I just gave my daughter a can of tinfoil and a hat the other day and I said, get to work. <laughs> Earn your food. Maybe I'll have to put that picture up for sale now. I don't know. Anyway, okay, so I think there's a lot to do in the conference. The expo is amazing. Uh, one of the speakers you didn't mention that I really am looking forward to hearing is Andy Anotko. I think he's hilarious and really intelligent. And I guess he went a whole year without buying any physical media, and he's going to talk about that. So you were saying how Ted Landau is kind of an institution in the Mac market. I'd certainly you'd have to put Andy in that category. I mean, really one of the most unique personalities, beloved personalities, fantastic writer, very, very, very high-quality geek. Andy actually is part of our free um, education program on that main stage that I referenced before. Not only is he doing a, a class on, uh, on how he lived a whole year without purchasing any media, but he's also um, something really interesting. He's actually going to be um, uh, doing an interview with um, uh, someone from the web comics world. So web comics is kind of an emerging type of, uh, of, of entertainment um, and we're going to, Andy is a huge comic buff. And so he's going to be talking about web comics as well. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing his sessions. And yeah. And so many of these things are just with the price of the expo pass. I think it's, it's just great. You guys have done a fantastic job of, uh, of changing things up this year. I'm just so impressed. Oh, I really appreciate it. I mean, when we set out to designing the show this year, you know, we were thinking of you first, you design it for yourself. What would you like to do? And we, and between all of the kind of really interesting, Big name people like like Leah Laporte and David Pogue and Kevin Smith, and then all the product discovery on the show floor, all the interesting things. You will find a product that you've never heard of before that you'll think is the most fantastic thing that happens every year at MacWorld, and we look forward to people discovering new products this year. We have a lot of first time exhibitors this year, a lot of people who are brand new to the market, and we're really excited to be hosting them. We also have you know a lot of the big name exhibitors like you know Microsoft and VMware and Doctor Bot and Other World Computing, and then a really great representation of the small companies kind of those innovative Mac indie developers that like, you know, Boink software, uh, rogue amoeba, Mac speech. So it's a very interesting place to come and find, uh, more ways to enjoy your love of Apple products. I mean, forget Apple to me, the measure of Macworld is how big tiny town is. <laughs> I mean, you learn so much from these little guys over the years. I've made a lot of friends and learned about a lot of, of interesting development and and found great products just walking around with those guys who just have enough to get a little table they don't even have enough for a chair you know but they've got us they've got a presence and that's that's just awesome well I, I think you go back to the origins of the Mac and you know and how Apple was created in a garage and the, that kind of spirit of of ingenuity you get that in the development community loud and clear at Macworld and that's again you know sometimes those circles of of people sitting on the floor those are are, are programmers who have met serendipitously at Macworld 
and they're designing the next great product. So that's just kind of the thing. And, you know, in, in all context, Macworld is one of the last bastions of open to the public. Any consumer can, can come to this. Like, you know, most trade shows are, you know, for the press or, you know, only for, you know, for executive level thinkers or that type of thing. Macworld is an open to the public event uh, where people who of a like interest can kind of come uh, and, like I said, find new products, get some cool information, make some friends. Yeah, I mean, it's for users. It is. And, you know, it's like CES. You've got to be in the press or you've got to have some position to get in there. But, I mean, Macworld is built for the users, and I think that's one of the things that makes it great. You know, I just, I'm just i looking through the conference schedule, and I see Sal Segoyan is going to be teaching AppleScript. That's like learning to paint from Picasso. You know, I mean, he's the man. Absolutely. I mean, um, you know, we are blessed in the Mac market to have people who are – really the top of their field, but they're so accessible. I mean, you know, David Biedney would be that with Photoshop and, you know, um, uh, Jeff Foster would be that, you know, with, with Final Cut. So almost everywhere you turn in the, in the, in our educational program, you're really kind of learning from people who, you know, for lack of a better term, wrote the book. Uh, Sal actually did write the book on Apple script. Yeah, that's so. true. I have it. <laughs> well, listen, you know, it is just a fantastic experience. The, the piece of it that I just cannot understate is the environment and the culture of just Mac geekiness that exists when you're there. That it kind of goes beyond the sum of the parts. I agree. We've put together something I think is very interesting, has a lot of value for all participants and we look forward to sharing it with everybody. Paul, we talked a little bit about the social aspect of Macworld beyond the expo, the, um, you know, socializing with other Mac users, the lunches, the dinners, the, you know, groups circling around, the the social parties after the show um, has closed off for the day. Are there any resources um, either through Macworld Expo or that you guys are using or promoting to kind of help people perhaps who are traveling to Macworld, you know, by themselves and are looking for, for ways to connect, um, to get involved and kind of find out? Some of these non-official Macworld events. Well, Katie, let me explain the the whole context of these social things, right? So, there are parties, there are informal gatherings, there are a whole lot of things. There, it is almost by design because no one place can kind of host everything. You need to be good at networking. You need to kind of like you know be social, and you need to kind of you know come looking for these types of things. You will hear about the parties. I mean, there, there will be lists that go around. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be some things that we post on our website. And then if you read good sites, you know, David, I, you know, I'm sure you post things that you hear about as well. And that's how you kind of hear about the medium to larger type events that are going on. And then you have to, you know, some things like Dave's uh, Cirque du Mac party, um, it, it is an invite only party, but you know, it, uh, an invite is obtainable, but you kind of got to do a little bit of, uh, of meeting people in order to get that done. So you have to, you have to be a little bit proactive in order to ensure uh, a full social calendar. But similarly, like I said, it is a very congenial, welcoming audience that, uh, you, that you'll be joining. So, um, get involved in discussions, which always turn into, um, after hours continuations over drinks, over dinner, just sitting in the convention center, go to the birds of a feather sessions. Birds of a feather happen in the evening and you can learn about those on the Macworld website. Again, absolutely free with the, with a, with an expo pass. So I guess the point of this is there's no official guide to the unofficial activities that are going on at activity uh, at, at Macworld. Excuse me. Um, you, you need to be a little bit social. You need to kind of get out there and, you know, when, if you hear about something that you think would be interesting, you know, go up and introduce yourself to, to whoever is responsible for it. 
And, you know, even if you are, feel like you're an introvert or you have trouble talking to people, uh, look, if you're a Mac geek, this is the place. I mean, go ahead and make some friends. It is, it is so easy here. And, uh, uh, I know that I always enjoy the week at Macworld every year because it's one of the few places where I can completely let my hair down. And, uh, I, I don't think there's any other experience like it for me. I appreciate you saying that, David. We do everything we can to kind of be good hosts and bring everybody to town so that they have a good time when they're with us. And last thing, Paul, we're, we're a little more than 30 days out from Macworld. If someone's kind of on the edge and, and maybe they've just decided they want to go, is there still time? Oh, absolutely. You know, that you can walk up to the door the day of the show and walk in if you wanted. There are um, some advantages, some classes fill ups, you know, there, uh, and a lot of people need to make their travel arrangements as well. So um, it's more expensive if you walk up the day of the show. But um, in advance, now, right up to the show, we will be able to accommodate you, certainly on the show floor. So like I said, some conference um, sessions might fill up that you have to pre-register for. But in, in general, you're fine, you know, just about to the day of the show. And you've got information on your website about hotels that you guys have partnered with and other accommodations? Absolutely. We have a whole travel section of our website that can help people get discounted airfares and discounted hotel rooms. And, you know, it's there's still rooms at good rates available. Just yesterday I was looking at the room rates because I'm I'm going to stay longer than I originally planned on. So there are still real good deals out there. So if you want to go, uh, don't hold, don't let that hold you back. I agree. Yeah, I'm finding a lot better room deals and a lot better air travel this time around. I think that's due in large part to the fact that it got moved to February and perhaps is out of that that uh, holiday prime travel time. I agree, and and you know the reality is you know the the world is still in somewhat of a economic um, uncertain period, and so all the hotels want to make sure that they're full. You know, airlines don't want any seats going uh, going unused, and so I think you're likely to find better travel deals down than in past years. Well, Paul, I sure uh, want to thank you for coming by and talking to us more about Macworld. I, for one, am really excited. It's just a month away. It's like Christmas again. And I uh, can't wait to see you there in, in February. Well, David, thanks for speaking on our faculty and thanks for hosting me. And uh, thanks for doing a great job getting good information out to the Mac users. Thanks, Paul. Take care. So we wanted to get to some feedback from our information management show because it seems like this is a topic where uh, everybody has an opinion. And uh, David, catching a little grief over there. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing fine. Yeah. Uh, just today, really, I started seeing the uh, the feedback on on Twitter over my problems with Evernote. Mm, don't uh, don't upset the masses. Yeah. There's a lot of people who really love Evernote, and I, I don't think I really trashed it on the episode. I don't think you trashed it. Uh, I think it's great, and if it works for you, that's fine. But for some reason, I just cannot. I can just not. I just can't get it. And we did get some email from people who agreed with me. Um, Brian was one. He had written in that you know he had a lot of hopes for Evernote, and he was real disappointed with the uh, the way that it exported, and also the way it handled text files. And I didn't realize that apparently the formatting in the text files isn't standard. And that causes some problems, and he sent in a link. And I don't know how, how deep we want to go into it, but uh, th- there are some issues with Evernote, and you know, it's not the end-all, be-all that that it, that everybody says it is. Right. I, I don't think that I've ever come across this issue with text editing. I've used my text in Evernote, you know, very basically just for notes. I've never been trying to do anything fancy, maybe bolded or maybe bulleted occasionally, but um, nothing fancy. So this is an issue. Uh, that I've run against. So, but I, I do agree the exporting issue is is problematic. But I don't know that it's really in Evernote's best interest to fix it because their their interest is probably in keeping you in their system. 
Yeah. And if Evernote does it for you, I'll be clear. I mean, go for it. I'm happy. You know, whatever works for you. I think the point of that episode was that there's a lot of great options and, and use what works, but it's just not for me. Uh, we got a lot of feedback from people who liked um, some applications that we didn't talk as in depth on. Uh, we've got an email from Jared um, who really likes things, and he says um, Yojimbo and things together are probably his favorite. One thing I, I think is interesting is that a lot of people tend to use many of these information managers for managing different pieces of their information. Yeah, I'm like that too. That's one of the things Tim was giving me grief about because I use OmniFocus and I use Yojimbo and I, I've got all these various things. But in my but I head, think you actually called yourself low maintenance. <laughs> no, I called myself a minimalist. And, oh, minimalist. Yeah, <laughs> I had all the. But in my head, at least, I know that there's different containers for different kinds of information, and it works for me. And I guess that's all that matters. Um, a lot of praise we also got for Notebook. And uh, Andy wrote in to just comment that you can use one notebook for many projects or you could use many notebooks for smaller projects and that if you tend to use one notebook for a lot of projects, it is somewhat problematic as the file size gets big and that can create problems, um, but that you can also break up stuff. Uh, a lot of people use um, information managers in conjunction with their GTD apps like Things or OmniFocus. We had several people write in. Um, using their information management apps in combination with OmniFocus specifically. Yeah, and that's that's right in my wheelhouse. I I use OmniFocus as much, if not more, than any of those information managers. The uh, I I misspoke during the last episode. Also, I think I mentioned several times the application File Shoot, which is a great app for uploading and sending big files to friends. But what I meant to say was File Magnet, which is the iPhone app that allows you to put copies of important documents on your phone. And then as expected, we had a couple of people write in with some alternatives that we didn't discuss. Um, one that I can't believe we forgot is Eagle Filer because it's made by C Command, who are the same people who bring you one of my favorite applications, SpamSiv. Um, and I have never personally used Eagle Filer, but I got to tell you, C Command makes some absolute great software. So I'm sure Eagle Filer is, is no exception. Well, the nice thing about Eagle Filer is it does allow you to keep those nested folders and it's a little bit more uh, open uh, in terms of keeping your files. It doesn't, I believe, compress everything into one big database. I did just get an email about an hour before we did this recording from a trusted uh, friend in MacGeek who said that he's been using Eagle Filer, very happy with it, but he's having a problem that when he exports a file that it removes the file from the database and, according to him, removes it from his hard drive. So... Uh, I, it's just, I haven't had enough time to really investigate that, but if you do use Eagle Filer, make sure you sort that out before you start dumping a lot of information in it and possibly losing files. We got a question in from Frank that, uh, maybe we'll throw out to the listeners and see if they can help him out because I couldn't think of anything off the top of my head. Uh, but he says, I'm really excited about the information management show and use a uh, notebook for research notes and Shovebox as well. Uh, is there a good information manager that syncs between multiple Macs and an iPhone aside from Evernote, which he says he just can't stand for some reason? And I think some of those applications will get us there. He mentioned that he already used Shovebox, and Shovebox has an iPhone client. Uh, Yo, Jimbo, to my knowledge, does not have an iPhone client. No, it doesn't. Um, so I don't know. Can you think of any other information managers out there that will sync between multiple computers as well as an iPhone? 
I don't know if there's any single application solutions. I know that there's there's others. I mean, my kind of kludgy response was I use Yojimbo between Macs and stuff that I really want on my phone. I put into File Magnet and send that down. So, or I suppose Dropbox or iDisk. Now that those both have iPhone yeah. components, and you forget that because I have a lot of data in my Dropbox. And just the other day, I, I wanted to review a file and was able to to look at it through Dropbox just fine. Now, speaking of all of this information that we have to manage, you're going to make us go through this all over again next episode? Sort of. <laughs> okay. We're going to look at it from the other end. I I think this, you know, we had in the outline talking about doing an RSS show, which, you know, may be just too boring and dull for everyone. But I got thinking, you know, there's a problem that you have as a Mac user, and it's this deluge of information coming on you. And it's between your RSS feeds we kind of talked about how to handle your email in the email episode, but you also just have stuff you're coming across on the web pages given to you. Uh, so you've got all this information thrown at you daily. And I thought we'd do a show on, you know, how to limit that onslaught of information and how to deal effectively with it. Cause I've given a lot of thought to this and, and got some definite workflows that I use for that purpose. So I thought maybe we just take a, take an episode and, and go through that. Okay, so we're going to call this Managing the Onslaught. Yes, it'll be fun. Let me know how you manage the onslaughts and me a note before we record the show. I'm interested in hearing other people's solutions as well. And speaking of reaching us, we should probably give out some contact information. Yes, you can always reach us at uh, feedback at MacPowerUsers.com. The email address goes to both of us. I know you may get a response from one. You may get a response from the other. You may get a response from both, but usually you get some kind of response. Yeah, we try. We try to get back to everyone. And you can follow us on Twitter at feedback. Nope. I'm sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> you can follow us on Twitter at Mac Power Users. Uh, and also our website has show notes and links to all of this information. You can find that at MacPowerUsers.com. One last thing before we leave is I just did want to throw out a thank you. We... Um, put out a call for suggestions on the last show with uh, asking people to kind of give us their input and their feedback on where they would like to see the show go. Um, if we did decide to add some additional content to the show, what kind of content would be meaningful? And we got some great responses. Certainly, we always like to get more. So if, if you have any thoughts on that topic, uh, please feel free to email us. We're, we're really just in an information gathering stage at this point. Um, and I just want to say thank you to those who decided to contribute to the show. Those are um, always appreciated and will certainly go um, to helping pay some of our hosting bills and uh, and that sort of thing. So thank you very, very much. Yeah, we made it through the first year. Well, not the first year yet, but we got through 2009. We got the show off the ground. And uh, we're starting to think now, what can we do next? So I'm looking forward to 2010 and uh, the exciting things that we're going to do on the Mac Power Universe. I'm, I'm looking forward to it as well. So we'll see you next time.